Good morning, everybody. And I want to um, I want to begin with a text, or more than a text, a passage from the New Testament. But then I want to see what it means from the Old Testament before we come back to the New. Um, and if you're up to that, then you can follow me. If not, just lean back and enjoy it. But And if you were here the last time I was speaking, we talked about therefore. And so for me, I'm picking up where I left off. If you weren't here, that's perfectly okay. What I have to say stands on its own two legs. And so verse 25 of Ephesians in chapter 4. Verse 25 of Ephesians chapter 24. Of 25 here, therefore, and then he says, laying aside or putting off falsehood. And he talks about that as he goes down here. And then in verse 31, still underneath, therefore, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And I want to really zero in on that verse 31, bitterness, and then all that follows there in verse 31 is the family of bitterness. Wherever you find bitterness, you find wrath and anger and clamor and slander, and a lot of malice. You will not find any kindness, tender-heartedness, or forgiving, and so bitterness. And we're called specifically, and when I say that, it was written to the Christians in Ephesus. And therefore, this isn't something you go and shout on street corners. This is a message to the church. Let all bitterness be put away. And then to the church, be kind to one another. Now, I said I was going to illustrate that. I will say this right now, that the heart of the darkness is bitterness. Bitterness is not like any other of that list of negative emotions. Bitterness is the, the beating pulse of the darkness, as I'll show you. And even as the heart of the light is love, and therefore they stand opposite each other. Now, I want you to, if you want to, turn back then to the book of Ruth. And we have talked about Ruth before sometime, but I don't want to talk about Ruth. I want to talk about the lady who never is mentioned in the book of Ruth, and that is Naomi. Uh, Naomi is there from the beginning to the end. She's the first verses, and it's the last verses. Really, it's the book of Naomi, and Ruth is the one that takes first place. But look at her. Um, it took place approximately 3,000 years ago. If you want a bit of history, come out of where you're sitting into a world of Bedouins with their long robes, um, with women who have little or no say in life. And this is in a very, very small village. Some of you have been there, uh, Bethlehem, and compared with what it was, today's Bethlehem is, is a metropolis. Um, but in the days we're speaking of, and if you came with me on the tour I took, um, we went outside of Bethlehem to catch the very spirit of what was happening right here. And if you remember, we sat down in the grass nearly at midnight and said it was right here that the angel of the Lord came and so on and so on. But um, this tiny, tiny crossroads in the middle of the tribe of Judah 3,000 years ago. It's the story of Naomi. Now, let me start out with names, because in, especially in the Old Testament, names had a tremendous meaning. Names were not handles that you gave to your children, which made it easier to say, come here. 
it it meant that you actually invested your faith in the child and you named the child according to your faith and so when you read a name and see what it meant and what it meant it always was a a sentence like to us a name like abraham well that's a name it's a single sound but in actual fact abraham is a little sentence and therefore every time the word abraham was said in the days in which abraham bore that name a sentence was said and so that is true of many many names they are little sentences and they were spoken over their children by their parents in the faith that god in his covenant love would bring that to pass and naomi her given name tells me a lot about her parents because the meaning of naomi means pleasantness kindness or grace and so they were looking to the god of grace and pleasantness and they were saying may he be made manifest in this little girl okay hold that one uh then she married a man called elimelech and a miller a mill that name i just said um it means to rule as a king and so again there is the sense of walking in a covenant in which you walk with authority and so on that couple had two children i'll get to them in a minute but they became pressed with famine and we could go back into the book of judges and almost pinpoint when this was happening inside the book of judges do you follow me um this didn't happen after the book of judges it happened inside the book and so there is a point where we could go back and see a famine in the land and this is the story of how two people handled that famine they decide to get out now to an american that makes all the sense in the world but not at all when it comes to the days of the bible for in the days of the scripture the land was covenant gift god said he would meet them in the land and as they trusted him he would care for them in the land in fact the word bethlehem means the house of bread and so not only did they have the general promises of god's keeping them in a famine but also they lived in the little tiny crossroads that actually bore that name but the decision was that they would go to moab if you know your map um israel and right at the bottom here of the river jordan there's the dead sea and just over the dead sea is moab today we call it jordan but in the days of the bible that was moab and ammon and and they were over there up against the dead sea on the other side so they're very close if you're going to go to moab it's a hop skip and a jump and you're there although in actual fact it was a million miles away um the story of moab and ammon is the most terrible terrible story in the book of genesis they they both of them moab and ammon were the children resulting from incest of lot and his daughters and it seems to set the tone for the whole family now remember lot was the nephew of abraham so that means lot had a full knowledge of what god had revealed to him and yet he turns his back on it and they become a family an extended family or two families moab and ammon and they are what shall i say twisted distorted and and this perverted sex that was at the beginnings of them as a people kind of goes through the whole nation and and they are noted in scripture for being just that but then they set themselves to worship a god by which i mean a demonic entity that portrayed itself as a god the name of that god was kemosh if you need to know c h e m o s h the kemosh uh, demanded human sacrifice 
human sacrifice. And so it was normal for that people that they would take their eldest or take their best. It was always you offer your best. And so you would take the best of your family and you would kill that child on the altars of Chemosh. That was part of being a Moabite. That was what it was all about, keeping the gods happy by extreme sacrifice of your own family. It's beyond me how anyone could live under the revelation such as they had in those days of Abraham and deliberately say goodbye to it and go over the mountains into Moab into that kind of people. I I can't, I can only report it. And and when they are there, it it wasn't only they're there, the two boys they had married two of the Moabite girls. Now that means, I mean, just think of it. It means that you are joining your family to another family, but that other family is going to put pressure to worship Chemosh. And therefore, this whole idolatry, this human sacrifice, and all of the twisted seductions of Moab have entered right into this family, and they're entwined with it. You've got to understand that. Um, Now, those two children, the two children, um, they, they, boy, I feel sorry for them. They, They, here it is. It says that Naomi and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. Now, Malon, I mean, that sounds an okay name. In fact, I know some Christians that have named their children Malon. Um, it means sick, diseased. Uh, what does that mean? It means that Naomi and Elimelech are very careless in the naming of their children. You you would think the kid was born sicky, and um, they, they just simply tossed out the name. He's the sick one. And it stuck. They never bothered to give an official real name, and that became his name, the sick one. And then... When the brother was born, Chilion, well, he he was a frail sort of kid. So so they called him frail and sick. Um, <coughs> you you see that they're not. There's no sense of investing their faith in, into the God who can do more than have a sick kid on their hands, and, and it's stuck. It's stuck, and, and so um, the children go now. And this is important as we go on. What 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 are the, this couple doing? Naomi and Elimelech are naming their children according to circumstances that happened to them. They got sick. They were always getting sick, frail. And well, that's the circumstance. So they, or to put it another way, they are drowning themselves. They're losing themselves in circumstances. An identity, the I am, the who you are, is defined now by the circumstances that attend you. Now that comes out with the children. Um, it, it meant that what would be to us a childhood sickness now defines the life of this, these children. And, and in fact, the whole family is, is going to be governed by this. This is who the children are. This is the way it is. They were born and the circumstances at their birth were sickness and weakness. That becomes their name. That becomes their I am. So that any time, you know, they introduce themselves, hello, I am sickness. That's my name. Um, you see, and the, the, the Hebrew um, understanding of God at this time was more as El Shaddai. It's going to develop very strongly into Yahweh, I am. But at this point, we're, we're way back there in history, they had this clear understanding that God was El Shaddai. El means God, and Shad means breast. 
And they said, God, who is the breasted one, God, who is the nurturer, he nurses us, he suckers us, he cares for us, he protects us, he looks after us. And that they worship God under the name of El Shaddai. And therefore, they are not to worship God via circumstances. They're to worship God in the rawness of who he is, not how circumstances might make him appear. Do you get that? And, um, and so when they name their children by circumstances of sickness, they are bypassing El Shaddai, who has a word to say about those children, but they pass it by. I was just in, um, well, both of us were, in, in Baton Rouge, and many of you know Frank Friedman, and many of you know about Avery, his little daughter, and I've been with Frank all through that period, and I remember when I went to visit and there was little Avery. She could, I don't know how old it would be stupid to say, but Avery was, her hands were twisted in, her feet were twisted in, and she, she actually was the poster child for, I think, muscular dystrophy or, but anyway, um, she was in the kitchen in this little four wheel walker in which she propelled herself. And she looked up at me and she said, I'm going to walk. Now, where did she get that from? Not from the family of Naomi, because they would have called her the little cripple girl. She'll never walk. Do you see what I'm saying here? In that family, the mood was, there's a God who cares for Avery, and it, the little tiny kid caught on to that and said, I'm going to walk. And... Today, literally today, we left there just a few days ago, um, Avery goes from children's hospital to children's hospital, walking and talking to all the children, saying, look at me and look where I am now. She even went to South Africa, to the hospitals in South Africa, as the, the vision of hope, because the family named her by the little walker instead of the little cripple. Do, do you understand? I'm trying to get at that here. It's not the circumstance. And you see, that in itself would take me to the heart of this part of what I'm saying. Um, we all have names. Here in the West, a naming is a useless thing. Uh, people name out of books, for goodness sake. And if it sounds right, and then there's a fad name, and everybody in that generation is called whatever. Um, well, let's forget that. And then don't go to books to see what that means. No, it means what chance said it means. Uh, you had no investment of faith to... No, we don't do it like they did, but we do it. Oh, boy, do we do it. And And the trouble is, because we don't do it as they did, it can be very subtle... And we name ourselves, and usually we name ourselves with a sentence, the same as they did among the Hebrews, and usually we picked it up from parents who named us with a sentence and didn't realize what they were doing. Um, I mean, out there, here, I'm sure one of you has the name, you'll never amount to anything. Um, I know lots of little children that are raised with that name. You'll never... Uh, I was raised, and you've heard my story. My mother forever was saying, that's not for the likes of us. That is, where peasants know your place, it will never be yours. It's not for the likes of us. That was my name. Didn't, and the strange thing is, she was talking about restaurants and possessions. It spilled over into the church that when they spoke of God loving me, if they ever did, it's not for the likes of me. It was my name. Do you understand? It was my I amness. Have you ever been called, you're not beautiful like your sister? You've been called the little, you're so stupid. Um, I, I was given that name by, by one of my math teachers. And that is probably why I don't understand math to this day. But now at my age, who needs to understand it? But, you know, I'll never forget when I was, what, 12, 13 years old, and the math 
department lifted my homework and dropped it in the garbage and said, Smith, you will never understand math. You are stupid. And my little heart said, that's my name. I'm stupid. I will never. You, you get, what about I'm never enough? I'm not enough. I'm never enough. I'm, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to go into life because I'm not enough. You get it. I had a boy in, in, in Brooklyn when I was pastor there, and tattooed on his arm was, I am a loser. And, and you get the point? And don't look at me so spiritual. We, we, we have had this. This entwines our life, these names that are given to us. And let me say, maybe before we get there, that these names are spoken out of bitterness. They're bitter. And when we acknowledge that's my name, I acknowledge it with bitterness. I'm angry. I, I'm not enough. Well, I should be enough. And there's somebody to blame for my not being enough. I should be more beautiful than my sister. And there's some, that doesn't come out, but it smolders inside. There's a fire burning underneath bitterness, and it spurts out. Because you see, names, they're attached to our mind and our self-image. Many times by our parents' controlling or outlook. And it becomes the expectancy of my life. And I'm not even aware of it. That's just, it's been so put into me, that's who you are. It can direct your life for decades. Until the Holy Spirit opens your eyes. But it's there. Okay, put that on hold. The husband, Emile, that guy, died. And when he died, the two boys marry. But what can you expect? They were sick, and they died. They, they fulfilled what had been said over them since birth. Now, we're there. <laughs> what was Naomi thinking? In all of that period of time, what is going on inside of Naomi's head? What's her outlook upon the whole stay in Moab? She sums it up in chapter 1 and verse 13. And I could just read it for you. First of all, she's talking to the two widows now, Ruth and the other girl. And she's saying, look, you, you, you go home. You, you don't have a husband, but you're young enough to get a husband. She said, and I know how much it hurts you. You've been afflicted. You've lost your husband. But she said, it is harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. She said, with you, your husband died. So your husband died. Get over it. Go and get married again. But for me, oh, here it comes, whining self-pity victim, for me it's so much harder than it is for you because with me I'm dealing with a God that can't stand the sight of me and his hand is against me and he did that to me. With you it just happened like it happens to everybody, but not me. With me it had a spiritual dimension. God killed my husband. His hand is against me. Okay. Well, they then get into Bethlehem. They've been away for some time. When they came to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred. The woman said, is this Naomi? Doesn't look like her. She said, do not, oh, here it comes. Do not call me Naomi. Right? Do not call me pleasantness. Don't call me the grace of God. Don't call me kindness. I'm over with that. Call me Mara, for El Shaddai has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me? Shaddai has afflicted me. That's what she had to say about these years. I mean, here she's saying, your husband died, but it's not the same as when mine died. Mine died because God made it happen. His hand was against me. 
and it caused me great grief and bitterness. He did that. He caused me the bitterness. He testified against me. He wasn't standing up for me in life. He took the opposition and testified against me. It's afflicted. I want you to hear this, that ultimately all bitterness is directed at God. Because bitterness must have someone to blame. Well, there comes a point where you run out of people and you jump and start blaming God. And that's at the heart of bitterness. That God is the cause of my grief. God is the cause of all my pain. And he's making me angry at him. I can't stand him. But what can I do? He's God and he's against me. Can you understand the, the stupidity of this? I talk about darkness as the great dementia. Well, Shaddai, El Shaddai, it means the protecting, the providing, the nursing, the gentle, the kind. Love in whose shadow they lived. And she's saying, that one singled me out to destroy me. And my family's in shambles because of that God. So she had looked at Shaddai and twisted and distorted who he really is to become this monster that came like a ravaging lion into her life and ripped it apart. She said, call me Mara. Mara in Hebrew means the bitter one. And it even goes back further than that. Do you remember when they were in the wilderness? And they saw water after days of being thirsty. They ran to drink the water, and it was vile, bitter, poisonous water. And they called the place Mara. She's saying, that's me. That's me. Don't come near me. Don't talk to me. I'm no longer that pleasant, nice, kind, graceful. Don't, don't. Call me Mara, the bitter old woman. That's who I am. And he made me bitter. Okay. What is bitterness? I don't want to talk too long on it. It's not, it doesn't make me happy. But bitterness means at its base, I've been afflicted. I've been distressed. Some agony has happened to me. It gives me anguish in a mental, emotional, let me call it black mold. What's going on in my head? Turning over this situation, what has happened, it's like black mold creeping through your house. It's cancer eating up the very cells of my soul. It's like corrosion, rust, until what was a beautiful piece of iron has now been corroded. and It's eating the soul of a person. That's bitterness. It's not merely something that happens and it's gone. No, this settles in. This is going to be with you for life. This is going to destroy you from the inside. That's the meaning of bitterness. It's that victim mentality. I've got to blame another for the pain that I'm in. And it always comes back to God. And that anger toward that someone is always, shall I say, a willful. It's an intentional anger. I want to be angry. Don't, don't send me a counselor. Don't tell me someone can help me get through this. I don't want to get through it. I want to be angry and I want to blame. And that anger turns inward first as a corrosion to me, but then outward. So with self-hatred turned against somebody or some bodies to God. That's bitterness. It's that poverty mindset because now i perceive myself not just as a thought but as i've got it i am separated from god i am not i have not and i cannot have it's been taken from me it destroyed me even if i ever had it you got resentment and it's mixed in with despair Despair of life, there's nothing to live for. But of course then envy kicks in, and I envy with hate. 
all the people that haven't had it as bad as me. And I say, it, it, it never, you can't have isolated bitterness. It spreads out. That's what you were saying to the people of Bethlehem. <laughs> you, don't, don't expect to find Naomi here. I'm a bitter woman. I'm going to make it. You, you're going to be in my sights. And when I'm angry at God, I'm going to be angry at you first. It, it means that um, I'm going to be a hostile person to live around. It means there's a smoldering anger all the time. And then suddenly, over a mere nothing, it boom, explodes. And people around say, where did that come from? You, you exploded in anger over something that hardly was worth talking about it. That is bitterness. It loves to gossip. Bitterness wants another to be hurt as much as they are hurt. And gossip is the perfect way to do it. Say things that other people will be harmed by what I say. Tell tales on people so they lose their job. Come on, let's be bitter about this. And sometimes if I can share my anger against another, I lose some of it. Because that's a lie, but people think that. Sometimes in the Bible, bitterness is called wormwood. It's a poison. It means a venomous person, like a snake. And it engraves itself upon the face and on the body. You can always tell a bitter person. It's, it's etched lines in their face. And their body is bent over so they only look down at the dirt. Ah, got that off my chest. That's bitterness. Never want to go back there again. The three widows come to the border. And you have that story of Ruth and what she said to Naomi, but we're not talking about Ruth. Just ends up that Ruth won't leave Naomi. That's amazing to me. I want to run for my life from that woman. But she comes in to Israel. Well, in those days, it was called Canaan. And... and so here they are. They return into Bethlehem. That's when the people gathered around and they said, is this Naomi? I mean, we remember when she left. Look at her now. Is this really Naomi? That's what bitterness can do to your face and, and to your body. And that's when, with, and I can feel her sarcasm is biting. You know, she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitterness, call me anger, call me self-pity. And while you do it, blame it all on God, El Shaddai. My provider, my protector, the nursing God, he did this to me. Now that's pretty bad. Let me say again, my name is my identity. It's who I am. And what she is doing is shredding her born identity which means I've lost myself I've lost my identity I've assumed a false identity that results in the confusion of who I am and where I am but notice what's happened now she is defining God by the happenings in her life this, I believe, is why this can be among believers and they never realize it. We define the character of God by what happens to us. And so she said, my husband died. My boys died. I'm left a widow in a wretched land. That must be because God is the punishing God. That must be because God has it out for me. Do you follow? Haven't you heard that before? Of course, we say it much more gently. We say, why did this happen to me? But behind that why, because you know there's no answer to that, behind that why is God did this to me, and he'd better stand up and tell me why he did it. 
rather by extension, if that's her God, who is defined by happening, she's defining herself by circumstances. And she defines her relationship to God in terms of life's happenings. Do, are you, you follow me on this? This happened to me, therefore God must have done it. And therefore God cannot be love. And I am angry at God. But if, if it happened to me, then I am a person that has been singled out and rejected and don't tell me God loves me. It's all about what happens to me. They move back into the old homestead because under those days you couldn't lose your land. There were no real estate agents in Israel. You couldn't sell your land. It was always yours, given to by God. So she goes back to the old homestead. And can you, can you think of it like this? Bitterness. It, it clings to where we live. You go into a house where there's a really bitter person and you can taste it. It, it, it's, it clings to the wall, like I said, black mold. Black mold's got nothing on bitterness. It, it is living death by choice. But the interesting thing, and this is so wonderful to me, that is the last time the name Mara appears in the book. That's only chapter one. And Mara said it, my name is Mara. It's as if the Holy Spirit says, oh, no, it isn't. I'm going to keep using Naomi. I found this amazing. He comes into our darkness where we're calling ourselves by every insane name, despising ourselves, saying we're not worthy, we're no good, we're not enough. And he keeps on talking to us in the names of truth. Who we are in his love. And of course that means I'm fighting goodness. Goodness won't go away and I'm trying to prove that goodness is evil. Won't leave her alone in our circumstance. He meets us right there in our darkness of what we call ourselves. Even though we are so blind and deaf that we are actually blaming him for our circumstances. But without any reference to what we're saying, he continues to put goodness in our pathway and speak love to us. See, this is where I don't really, if if you're thinking about what I'm saying, it could be that I've lost a lot of people already because it's deeply, deep inside of what Christians believe that somehow God gave us circumstances. But if we whine, plead, scream, yell, dedicate ourselves enough, then we can get him to change his mind. And he will magically make circumstances occur for us. That's how bitter people who are trying to be Christians think. Can I, did, you, did you hear what I'm saying? Don't, don't gloss. This is at the heart of it. What happens to me? Did God make it happen? If he did, then how can you say God loves me? No, you see, you've heard me say, and it's a big word, we don't use it often, but it's contingent. You ever, we, God made this whole creation to be a contingent creation. By that I mean it's a creation in which there is freedom. God doesn't make every blade of grass grow. He made one blade of grass in Genesis 1 and said, now you be fruitful and multiply and bring forth after your kind. And sometimes we have a good summer, sometimes a bad summer, sometimes the grass grows, sometimes it doesn't grow. God doesn't have anything to do with that. It's a free creation. He made birds with wings and he said fly, but he doesn't give them an address to land. They are free. You ever thought about that? Because then there's you. That's the scary part. We, we are at the head of all creation. 
and he gave us free will, freedom. Just leave it at freedom. Um, it would have been so much easier if he made us robots. Because then he pulls the string or he touches the button and we do what we're supposed to do. But freedom means that I am free to make the most horrendous choices. I, I am free to make choices that are absolutely stupid. I'm free. And we, we say, we say, look at such a... Why, why doesn't God do something? What do you mean, why doesn't God... You want God to turn that person into a robot. Ah, but just a minute. Who's praying that God will turn you into a robot? It's very complicated. We live in a free world. And in that free world, terrible things happen. Through the choices of people, just like you. So what does God do about it? I want to shrink him. Why, why don't you do something? He does. When we act, when we choose, he honors our decision because we matter to God. It matters that you are here this morning as opposed to there. It's not just a ho-hum, maybe, perhaps. It matters. However you came to the choice, it matters. You are significant, and he honors your choice. Even though that choice may be evil. Okay, what, how come they go to Moab and all hell breaks loose in their lives? They chose to go there. God didn't put them there. They chose. And when they got there, they chose that their boys should get entangled with idol-worshipping families. They chose that. They chose to be in a place where people killed their sons and daughters. So now she's coming back. It's God's fault. No. He honored your choice. He honored your choice. But he who honored your choice with all its consequences never leaves you he joins you in your life even when it's been put together by a madman. Okay. God bless your nod. Is there another? Yeah. Do think about this. I said this gets to the heart of it all. Does God do it? Or do are we? And of course the we extends far beyond me and you. It extends to everybody's freedom, and here we live in this cauldron of freedom. But this is, this is the gospel, that God joins us. He joins us in our crazy decisions, not to judge us, but to actually use those decisions ultimately to bring us to see himself. The bricks and mortar of bitterness and frustration that put many people's lives together. He uses it, uses it by choice. Okay, you've got a free choice. He's got a free choice too. And he freely chose to live with you and to take your free choices and let his free choice see what he will do with your free choice. Mara got out of bed every morning and her attitude was, it's just another day. Mara. She looked at life through Mara glasses. But God was in her bedroom. And he said, good morning, beautiful. Good morning, pleasantness. Good morning, grace and kindness. God works in our life in spite of ourselves. I was raised, sort of, to, to believe that God would work in my life if I dedicated my life enough. But if I wasn't dedicated, then he could care less about me. But what this is saying is that El Shaddai never left Mara. And with her terrible decisions, he kept on saying, I love you. 
and I'm moving you into my purpose. I mean, Isaiah 43.1 is quoted a lot, and it's a beautiful verse. I am your Redeemer. I called you by name. And the name he calls us is our true name. It's not the name we call ourselves. It's, it's our true name. And that true name is entwined with his name. Because since before you were born, you were the object of his love. And that's what he calls you. He doesn't call us by the names of the lie. But the names that we bitterly call ourselves by the happenings and by the opinions of others. He calls us as he knows us to be. He calls us as he created us, as he owns us by his love. You know, Paul, it's all through the New Testament. What's your name, Paul? For me to live is Christ. That's who I am, you know. It's, um, well, I guess the best one, it's in the parable that Jesus told. You know, the kid comes home and he's talking of his identity. He said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It was in his little speech. He'd made up his mind about that. That was intentional. And, and there, there's a hidden anger there that, you know, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Look where it's got me. Look at that. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And so on. And, and the father comes like a, a tornado into his life and says, you are my son. And then when he refers to the son, this son of mine, he absolutely will not even go there with the son. He will not even sit down and discuss that you've got it all wrong. You'll find that out later on. Just get used to the idea. It's no, nothing's ever changed. You are my son. Do you get what I'm saying? That's how he always deals with us. But of course, she didn't know that, do any of us. But then Ruth goes to on welfare. Welfare in the Old Testament was following the reapers and picking up whatever they dropped. And if you were a reaper, you were not allowed to pick up anything you dropped. And so you would take in barley harvest, the wheat harvest, and you, you, you had to have strong fingers because don't drop anything. Because if you drop it, they pick it up. That's the law. And don't ever go to the corners of the field and, and cut that down. All the corners of the field belong to the poor. It was their welfare system. And so Ruth goes out at five in the morning to join the other girls. They're dirt poor. They're going to collect what they can. Now, she is very unwelcome. Because she's a foreigner, she looks like a foreigner, she talks like a foreigner. She's from Moab, but she's here. So she has a right now to come and collect as the poor do. She comes home that night loaded. She has barley sticking out of her ears. I mean, and Naomi says, where did you get that from? Well, it was there and I picked it up. And then gradually the story begins to come together that the boss owner of the fields, the richest man in Bethlehem, he had told his servants, drop a lot of stuff, drop it. But only drop it in front of that girl. Make sure she picks it up. And um, then you remember that little love story. They had popcorn and Coke together. It's, and that's in the Bible. But... um. I'm not talking about Ruth. She came home, and Naomi is beginning to cry. She said, where, 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 where were you today? I mean, welfare doesn't supply like this. Where, where, where did you? And it came out. I was in the fields of Boaz. And suddenly the lights came on. And she said, Boaz, Boaz, is my husband, my dead husband's brother. And that means he is Goel. We've talked about Goel before, but let me quickly, again, it was, a, in, it was the love of God put inside the society to care for people. Goel. To be Goel, number one, you had to be a close relative. 
bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Somebody in my family. Secondly, you had to be wealthy because I'm going to ask for your money. And thirdly, you've got to have love and compassion and willingness to do it. And that was called Goel, which in English means kinsman, redeemer. This is the New Testament word redemption. This is what it's about. Kinsman, redeemer. And Boaz means the strong one. And so, what is she asking? According to the law, she can ask Boaz to fulfill his position as a kinsman, who is a close kinsman, a redeemer, because I'm falling apart. I'm going to lose my land to debtors. And so, Boaz would have to assume Naomi and Ruth. They both lived on the property. And he would have to assume their debts as his own. He would have to assume their hopeless condition as his own. And to assume it in himself. That is, there's no third party. It isn't that this man knows a banker down the street that can co-sign a loan. No. This man steps into the house of Naomi and Ruth and will be the Goel, the kinsman redeemer, which means at that moment every bill that has been delivered to Naomi now is his. And the whole condition of the place is his responsibility. He has in effect become Naomi. Do you understand? So he, Boaz, receives the debt. It becomes his debt. And within Boaz is enough love, compassion, and wealth that as it passes across his hands, it's no longer a debt. Because he doesn't even have to think about paying it. Just is. I'll pay that, it's gone. He met the hopelessness of Naomi and he met it with a hope that extended through their lifetimes. He assumed it into himself and who he was paid it. Disappeared in the fullness of who he was. He took the misery of this woman and it drowned in the laughter of the Goel. In the face of the Goel, she meets the real El Shaddai. That was the meaning of the law. And that, that, that is redemption, you see. In, in redemption, Ruth, who became his wife, well, at the moment she became his wife, she assumed the name of the Goel. She is no longer the Ruth of the dead husband. She's no longer basically a Moabite. She is now one with the richest man in Bethlehem, in Judah, which is the place of all God's promises. She carried the identity of Boaz. And when she walked down the street, people treated her as Boaz. She no longer followed the reapers. She owned the reapers. And of course, Naomi was caught up with all of that. It's very interesting. Right at the very end, the women of the the place, Bethlehem, they say that Boaz was given to Naomi to restore her. Now, that's a nice word, however you look at it. But in the Hebrew language, it's a very specific word. It means to restore you back to the place where you left the path. Where you left the path. So, it's not just a general restoration. 
It says, you got lost here. That's where we're going back. And you're going to get that right. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 23. He restores my soul. Same word. Takes you back to where you lost it. He takes us back where we left the path. Where we plunged into the wilderness of a false identity. He takes us back and introduces us to who we truly are. But had forgotten. He nourishes us. Now the amazing thing. The amazing thing. All through scripture. Especially in Isaiah. God calls himself the Goel. Now that doesn't come out, of course, in our translations. We, we have the, the Lord says he, he's our redeemer. The Passion Translation has helped a lot by saying the Lord says, I'm your kinsman redeemer. But the word is Goel. Now, have I made it plain enough that they should take your breath away? You know, he is saying, I am one with you. I'm bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh. I am with you. I'm in your family, not extended family, close family. So close I can be called Goel. And he said that in Isaiah, anticipating the day when God the Son would indeed be incarnate. And, and do you understand what that means? God incarnate is not just a baby in Bethlehem. God incarnate is God himself. God El Shaddai, God Yahweh, God himself actually assuming my humanity and saying he's part of my family without a halo. Just my family. It's incredible. And so my situation, your situation, he takes as his own. It isn't, you see, many people say, Jesus did something for us. No, that's you got a third party there. No, he did it as us. He stepped into our shoes. He assumed our identity. And he said, your trashed life is mine. And when you look at Jesus in his sufferings, that's what you see. I mean, well, okay, we've been here before. What, what, what are the sufferings of Jesus? As a quick recap. The sufferings of Jesus, according to every verse in the New Testament that addresses it, it says that God, the Son, having taken our humanity, put himself into the hands of a bitter, angry mankind. The bitter rage of mankind against God was taken out on Jesus. Wicked men finally had God in their hands and they're going to shred him. And he gave them permission to do it. In fact, what's that in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, this cup. He likened what he was going to do as a cup, which in the Old Testament is referred to sometimes as a cut of bitterness. It's like drinking a poisonous cup filled with vile, venomous herbs. That's what happened. Mankind was not only bitter against God, but they took the cup of their own bitterness and pressed it into his lips and made him drink their bitterness. That's the death of Jesus. We killed him. We brought Jesus to the nth degree of bitterness. Well, how could I be? He, if I, I, I go back to Naomi now, if, if he became Naomi, okay, do you, do you understand? If Jesus, I'm just illustrating this, if Jesus became Naomi, 
It means he sees all her life through her eyes. So he knows how she feels about it. Because he also sees it through her perceptions of God, even though they're all wrong. And what he hears is everything Naomi heard, the lie that God did this to you. But in taking her place, seeing, hearing, perceiving as her, he refused to be Mara. And when he could neither see his father nor feel his father, he said, my father, you never leave me. You never abandon me. He trusted his father and in so doing, cancelled the bitterness. He took the bitterness of mankind into his very self, but his very self is God who is love among us. And when God's love took a hold of man's bitterness, he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And bitterness was replaced by love. Does it make sense? That is the story of the incarnation. And that is when it says, you were redeemed by the blood of Christ. For it was the blood that he shed that was the cost of getting inside of us at our worst. So then it says, therefore, therefore, put away bitterness. Why? Because it has no more place in you. That's the meaning of the resurrection. He took it away. So it's, it's no more place. It's got no more authority in you, over you. Your name is no longer bitterness. Your name is no longer anger. Your name is entwined with Christ. You are, I'll give you a name, your beloved. I'll give you a name, you are the righteousness of God. I'll give you a name, you are redeemed by the blood of the Goel. It's who you are. And so we put off bitterness. And as I said the last time we were together, it was like throwing a filthy, flea-ridden garment away from yourself. <laughs> I, I, I can no longer have that. That is what crucified Christ, and that's what he overcame. That person I was, was judged inside of Christ. He took it and dispensed it. And the person, the new person I am, entwined in Christ, is a person that is beloved and is love. What does that mean, put it off? Well, there's another hour. But quickly, let me say, you stop talking as if the old you was still alive. You know, if that same trash comes out of your mouth in, revert, in terms of who you are, the opinion of others as to who you are, the opinion of parents as to who you are, well, then, then you know, words have tremendous power. In James 3, it says that that little member, your tongue, controls your entire body. And scientifically, that's true. What you say, it directs your genes, and your genes direct emotions and feelings and choices and the shape of your body, and the state of your body, too. And so, put it off. Stop talking of yourself as a person that is the object of God's meanness. Stop talking of yourself as the one that is not enough, no good, unworthy. Stop talking of yourself as the person that says, it's not for the likes of me. I'm not beautiful, I'm... No. All that went down into death in the death of Jesus. And you, the true you, entwined with Christ your life, came out in the resurrection. So start talking about that. Let this is who I am be painted on the canvas of the cross and resurrection. He's called us a new name, it says that. You've got a new name. That's your real name. A new relationship of knowing the Father as Christ knows the Father. You have a new identity as a child of God. 
Therefore, you've got a new attitude to life, a new hope in life. You are a total rest and contentment. And so what we face in the gospel is naming ourselves by faith in the faith of God. We look beyond our parents, look beyond our circumstances, look beyond every person that's ever walked through our life with a negative mouth. And we say, I am who he says I am. They're real identities. They're not, they're not playing games. And therefore, the old names must be cast aside, along with all the behaviors that are attached to them. And you can't do that until you know what I've said. It's a therefore. It isn't you've got to stop doing that. It is therefore. What's the therefore? The therefore is our Goel walked into our wilderness and he became us that we might become a co-sharer with him in who he is. So, there you have it. Um, it's, it's not a time for an appeal. People have talked to me in the last few days about the fact I never give an appeal. No, and you never will hear me give an appeal. Because you see, I don't believe that if you walk out and you get run over by a bus, you're damned forever. Um, I've got no need to pressure you. The Holy Spirit's doing a jolly good job. And the Holy Spirit shows to me in preparation and in delivery. He shows you those areas where we've got it all wrong. And in Christ Jesus, we get it all right. And then in our circumstances, we don't blame God, we meet him and recognize that he is working in those circumstances to bring about his glorious good. Amen. And so, Father, we thank you that you are unbeginningly good, unendingly good, and always good. We thank you that your love is poured out upon us this day. And now as we go into our daily work, let it be in the wonder, the awe, that you loved us and you love us. You gave yourself for us and you continue to give yourself into us. And our lives follow in the therefore. Thank you. We commit ourselves to you in the name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.